0: TTJ Podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. And Eclipse interfaces with programs like Redoc to create a true paperless office. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. I think it's incredibly important that researchers and clinicians work together on these projects.
1: A big problem that I think we all deal with is the amount of variability that there is in practice.
2: The consumers of this research literature need to interpret that data cautiously.
0: Welcome to Part 2 of the July 2009 PTJ Podcast Debate, Applying Treatment-Based Clinical Prediction Rules in the Clinic. Here again are Dr. Mark Hancock, Dr. Rob Herbert, Dr. Julie Fritz, and our moderator, Dr. Daniel Riddle.
3: We will begin part two. I'm going to pose a question, and I I think we'll begin by asking Mark. Mark, how would you advise clinicians to use data from some of these preliminary studies in the clinical decision-making process?
0: Thanks, Dan. I guess based on our previous discussion, pretty cautiously would really be what I'd say. Um, I guess I'd really encourage clinicians to think of the findings from these studies as prognostic findings so they can tell them about the likely prognosis of patients who are receiving those treatments. But I think they really should be very cautious and probably avoid considering them to give them advice about subgroups of patients who will do well with that particular intervention.
2: Rob? I suppose that it's worthwhile pointing out there are very few studies that have investigated effect modification in randomized trials of physical therapy interventions. So it's early days at the moment for this process. I think practicing physiotherapists are going to have to be largely guided by the average effect estimates in randomized controlled trials. At the moment, that's largely going to be the best information we can get about the effectiveness of an intervention on any particular individual.
1: This is Julie. I'll chime in on that as well. I would add that a big problem that I think we all deal with is the amount of variability that there is in practice. And a lot of that could be reined in and guided by simply looking at the results of randomized trials that we have and discontinuing things that have been pretty well identified as not having a role in the majority of patients as opposed to the sort of traditional authoritative anything goes perspectives that oftentimes happens in
0: clinical practice. Uh, My only comment is really to agree with Julie's comments about plausibility and things being rational. I think it's important that clinicians look at the findings and think whether that makes clinical sense to them. You know, we spend a lot of time with our students talking about clinical reasoning and I think they should judge these rules to some extent based on that as well. Some of them in the literature that I look at just make absolutely no sense to me and I really don't believe them at all. Whereas others, I think there's a much stronger rationale for why they might be worthwhile.
3: And is that judgment purely based on biological or clinical plausibility, Mark, or is it based on something else? Your decision about this doesn't make any sense, this one does.
0: That's a tricky question, Dan. Um, It's a good question, but a tricky one. To me, it's a combination of both. It's based on clinical experience and biological rationale. If there's Mm -hmm. something that just seems, well, I can't come up with any reason why it would be useful, and I think the literature supports that we should be very cautious of those, even when they are developed in RCTs. So even if you have a strong design, if you put in enough predictors, something will jump out. And so we still need to look at those predictors and say, are they worthwhile? We know if you look at lots of features, you will just find something crazy sometimes.
2: Comment, Rob? I suppose we've been uh, edging around a tricky issue, which is how a clinician uses information, both that comes from their understanding of the biology of the problem, their clinical experience, and also information from research to make decisions about who they do and don't offer particular interventions to. My way of thinking about it is underneath everything we offer to patients as intervention, we would like to have, of course it may not be achievable in practice, but we would like to have evidence of at least an average effect in a population that comes from well-designed, randomised, controlled trials. I'm quite happy for the idea, even though it might seem a little bit contradictory to what I've said earlier about needing rigorous studies identifying effect modifiers. I'm also quite happy for the idea that clinicians start with an assumption about the effect of therapy based on the average effect observed in a randomized controlled trial and then use information about the pathology of the problem and the clinical experience to adjust those estimates upwards or downwards I think the important thing is that the starting place for these estimates about the effects of therapy come from unbiased estimates from properly designed, randomised trials. I would rather see therapists' estimates of the effects of an intervention modified by clinical experience than to see them guided by clinical decision rules based on single-arm trials, which I think are potentially seriously misleading.
0: Dan, I was just going to add one thing. I think another thing that's really important is to consider patient preference. There's a fair bit of literature suggesting that the effect of treatment will be greater or can be greater in patients who choose one treatment over another or have a preference for a treatment. So I think if there's two treatments that have some evidence of a small effect across a large group of patients, I think one of the really important things for clinicians to do is to consider the preference of the patient between those two treatment options.
3: I found Rob's response very intriguing in that, and Rob, please correct me, I know you will if I'm wrong on this, but what I got from you was the gist that clinicians should be using average effects from large well-designed trials to estimate effects from various treatments and then modify that effect either up or down for an individual patient based on clinical experience rather than based on information from these preliminary clinical prediction rule studies.
0: Did I, did I
2: capture that's that? Exactly, that's exactly yeah I
3: feel. And so if that's the case, I'd like to get a response from Julie as to how she sees this preliminary literature fitting into that whole way of making decisions about what treatments are appropriate for individual patients. Julie, would you chime in?
1: Sure. I think it goes back to this whole issue of plausibility that we were batting around earlier, and I think it actually corresponds to what Rob is saying in the sense that the adjustments that therapists make to their decision-making based on overall results of trials should come from more than just single-group studies that don't either jive with the clinical experience of that therapist or simple mechanical biological plausibility. And I don't think any of us would at all be comfortable to apply treatments to patients without some process of further reflection on what just plain makes sense based on training and based on experience.
2: Maybe I could throw in an example here to illustrate how I think this could work. Unlike all the examples we've discussed up to now, it comes from the field of neurology. We've got some reasonably good randomised controlled trials that show that motor training after stroke can improve people's functional performance, for example, balance during reaching tasks. And those trials have been conducted on reasonably heterogeneous populations of stroke patients. So my way of thinking is that the well-informed physical therapist should start from the assumption that if they provide a training program like the ones in these trials, they should expect to see benefits in functional performance. But they shouldn't ignore the clinically obvious. For example, we know that there are going to be some stroke patients who have dementia or who have receptive aphasia or who have severe comorbidities that make it very difficult for them to train effectively. And obviously, those patients are going to respond less well to motor training. On the other hand, there'll be other patients who are highly motivated, who have the capacity to practice well, and we would expect that those patients are going to do particularly well.
3: So here we're left in a bit of a quandary about how we educate clinicians on how to interpret this ever-growing body of literature. So what recommendations would you make to educate clinicians on the various stages of clinical prediction rule development
2: and how should this influence
3: their confidence in using these data for decision-making?
2: I think a PTJ podcast is a great place to start. (laughs) I'm hoping that some of the listeners will be challenged to think about these issues. Fundamentally, we need practicing physical therapists to use information from randomized controlled trials to guide clinical practice, but we need them to do it carefully. I think that's a reasonably simple message.
1: This is Julie. I I agree. I think we could go a long way in improving practice by focusing on what we do know from methodologically sound randomized clinical trials and then further refining our decision-making based on looking for these subgroups And there's certainly a role in the overall practice of evidence-based medicine for data that comes from case series, but it's limited and it's inherently subject to bias. And that's a basic tenet that we certainly teach our students. It's just we sort of lose sight of that sometimes when we throw that word prediction rule into the study.
0: Dan, I'd guess. This area is complex and I think it's really hard to expect clinicians to really interpret some of these studies and fully know how to. And I think it's really important that the research community and the journals and editors take responsibility so that the results are reported in a way that makes it easier for clinicians to interpret the studies. But there's a fair bit of literature talking about stages of development of prediction rules and that literature is really very clear that Prediction rules really shouldn't be recommended for clinical practice until they've been shown to generalise to at least another setting in which they were developed. And we don't really have any prediction rules at the moment for physical therapy that have achieved that. So I guess one of the things I really hope that will come out of this is that more researchers will look at validating and testing the generalisability of the prediction rules that have been developed and maybe stop developing so many more and we really focus more on that approach
3: I want to thank all three of you for participating. This has been a really important discussion, and my hope is that we have more than a few clinicians out there who tune in and listen to both Part 1 and Part 2 of this discussion. I'd like for each of you to just, again, take one minute to summarize for us what you think the key take-home messages were from this discussion, and we'll start with Julie.
1: I think I would summarize our discussion in emphasizing that we all agree that the goal is to ground our profession and the treatments we deliver in the scientific literature and to look for more scientifically sound ways to integrate in what clinicians often tell us about preferential response to treatments.
3: Thank you. Mark?
0: Thanks, Dan. I think it's incredibly important that researchers and clinicians work together on these projects. I believe it's actually the researchers that see the groups of patients who do respond best to treatment, and they really have the ideas that we then should go and investigate. So we talk about investigating plausible or rational predictors, and I really think it's the clinicians who should be working with researchers so that we're investigating the right things. Hopefully, that's a way to move this forward.
2: And Rob? Yes, then uh, I think the goal that we're aiming for is for clinical practice to be informed by well-designed, randomised trials. Researchers currently are aspiring to identify subgroups of people in randomised trials who respond best to intervention, but that's a technically difficult thing to do. It's sometimes been done well and often been done poorly, and so... The consumers of this research literature need to interpret that data cautiously. In the meantime, the best informed clinicians will bring to their interpretation of randomized controlled trials issues of biological plausibility and clinical experience to help them interpret that for clinical practice.
3: Very good. I want to thank all of you for participating. I think this has been very fruitful from all of our perspectives. Let's hope for continued improvements in the literature moving forward, and I certainly echo Mark's suggestion that if there is ever a topic for collaborative research efforts among clinicians and clinical researchers in physical therapy, it's this topic of clinical decision rule development and validation. So thank you again, and I appreciate your full participation.
2: Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Dan.
3: Thanks, Dan.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Share your comments via email at ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail at 626-593-7825.